Happy Monday, my Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, I've got to make sure you guys know about the amazing year-end promotion we have going on on our Patreon right now. Of course, you can find that at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Our patrons, our members of the Lions of Liberty Pride fully support this show. And we reward them for that support with all sorts of exclusive bonus content, including early access to interviews like today's interview with Glenn Jacobs, early access to next week's interview with Van Armani about the Dim Age, and of course, all sorts of exclusive bonus content that the only the members of the Pride will access, including Conspiracy Corner, including Degenerate Gamblers, including the brand new show, Drunken Howie Story. If you know Howie Snowden, who has made many, many appearances across our various shows, uh, hearing him get drunk and try to recap something, let alone a, a libertarian piece like the latest when he tried to recap Anatomy of the State after several, several adult beverages. Let me just tell you, it's a fun time. And right now, you have an amazing offer where from now until the end of the year, just another couple weeks, you can get two, two free months by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride by supporting us on Patreon with an annual subscription. An annual subscription gets you a 16% discount. That is two free months. And if you join at the equivalent of the $15 higher level, we'll also toss in, in addition to all the bonus perks you already get, a little Lions of Liberty beanie to keep your keep your little head warm during the winter days. You don't want to go through Joe Biden's dark winter with a cold head. That's all I know. So head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, support the show, and get two free months. My God, how can you pass that up? Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, my guest today is making his return to this program after appearing as one of my very first guests way back in episode six. Most of you, most of you probably weren't here then. Uh, since then, he has taken a little time away from his career, choke slamming and tombstoning opponents in the WWE wrestling ring as the Big Red Machine Kane, and he has gone on to become the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. Very pleased to welcome back Mayor Glenn Jacobs. Mayor Jacobs, are you ready to roar? Yes, I am ready to roar. Somehow I thought you would be. <laughs> You've done a lot. I've seen you roaring in the in the wrestling ring. Well, maybe not roaring, kind of a silent roar, uh, more of like a silent assassin <laughs> as Kane uh, in the wrestling ring. But you've been roaring uh, for years now, you know, talking about the ideas of liberty. You've been you've been vocally talking about this stuff for I think close to a decade now, and here you are actually in office as a libertarian, small L libertarian, uh, I should say. But uh, you know, when I first spoke to you uh, as, as as a fledgling podcaster uh, seven years ago or so, you were still a full time pro wrestler, uh, and at the time you actually did express that you were open to the idea of running for office. So we'll get a little bit more into just why you decided to do that, how you ended up as the mayor of, of Knox County, Tennessee. But since we have so many new listeners since back in 2013, maybe you could just do a little bit of a, a recap, kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of just how it was you first got interested in politics and how you went down this path of, of becoming a libertarian. Sure. And actually, that first interview that we had together, I remember I was in Washington, D.C., visiting with the... Uh, um, the folks at Freedom Works. That's right. You're in D.C. I remember that because yeah, we were talking about how, how icky it must have felt to be there. <laughs> to, to be in D.C., not at Freedom Works. That's a great right, organization. Right, yeah, to be clear. To be clear. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, to be in D.C. I was born into what I would consider like a Goldwater conservative family. Uh, my mom and dad were old school uh, conservatives. One of my first memories, for whatever reason, 
is in the back seat of our Volkswagen Dasher station wagon driving through the uh, the uh, highway down outside St. Louis, Missouri, where my grandparents lived. And we're passing under some of the high voltage electricity lines. And my mom made a comment about eminent domain and how terrible it was that the government condemned and took people's property. And that was like, I was like four years old. And for whatever reason, that stuck with me uh, for for years and years. I know it's really weird. It's weird. My folks were not overly political. It's not like we sat around the kitchen table and talked about things like that. Did, did the unfairness um, got, of that idea strike you, though, even as a four-year-old child? It's like, wait a minute, they can just yeah. go and take, take your house, take your yeah, property? Yeah, of course. You know, it, of course, you know, people work for their for their stuff and uh, the, the government could just come along. And, uh, of course, intimate domain literally means superior ownership mm-hmm. uh, so they can just take anything at any time. I was like, man, that doesn't sound very American to me. Right. Um, and, and of course, meanwhile, at school, you're probably being told, don't take people's stuff. Don't touch. Right. Exactly. <laughs> in a sandbox. Don't take people's right. stuff. Um, but when I got to college. Even back then, the higher education realm was populated by folks that tended to be a little left. Uh, so I remember going through those struggles. I graduated from college, got out in the real world, and I was like, man, that was that stuff doesn't work out here. You know, and it seems like, uh, you know, really the um, in, instead of encouraging people to be productive, we're encouraging people to live off of the system in whatever way. Mm-hmm. Um so that also had a big impact on me and uh, just my own personal uh, personal outlook on life. I was fiscal conservative. At the same point in time, I was not uh, I wasn't I'm not a social liberal. And I hate when people say libertarians or fiscally conservative, socially liberal. Okay? Uh, I'm with you there, too. Yeah, yeah I'm not a fan. Of I, in my own life, I'm, I'm social conservative. I just don't think the government should be enforcing what people do if you're not hurting anyone else. Right. And that's how I felt about it. And I was really confused because I, you know, I've always been on the right, but at the same point in time, this is back in the, in the late 1990s, early two thousands, the culture wars at their height. And I was just like, man, I just, I cannot, you know, cannot wrap my mind around this idea that government should be telling people what to do in the living room and the bedroom and all this other stuff. And a friend of mine said, I sounded like a libertarian. And, and I that, told him, just to be he, clear, I believe that friend was that uh, WWE wrestler Val Venus. Yes, it was. Okay, yes. I heard that elsewhere, but you hadn't mentioned right. that on the show. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was his real name, Sean Morley. Right. And I told him, I was like, if you if you call me names, we're going to get into a fight. Okay? <laughs> you thought he was just like give, giving you grief. Yeah, right? I, I, I had no idea what the term libertarian meant. Uh, but I was intrigued. And he, he explained also the Nolan chart and how, uh, you know, how it's left and right is one thing. But the really important difference is liberty versus authoritarianism. Uh, and I was intrigued by all that. Did some just, just talking about how you're in your personal life, you're kind of a social security, uh, social conservative. Uh, this friend of yours, the character he played was actually a porn star in WWE. Yeah. So I, I find that yeah. kind of funny. Not, yeah, <laughs> definitely not a social conservative. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's safe but to say I did Sean some research and, and at first I was what I'd call an ad hoc libertarian in that, uh, I just agreed with libertarians on most stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some stuff I didn't agree on because I didn't understand the philosophy behind the, uh, just behind all of it. Uh, and as I delve deeper into my, uh, my curiosity, I'm one of those people that my wife always says, you know, when I, when I get on a train of thought, I have to know everything about something. And I certainly did that with political philosophy, discovered that libertarianism is actually political and legal philosophy more than anything else. And, uh, discovered Austrian economics along the way, became intrigued with that. Uh, it's 
been a journey now that's taken a couple decades and something that I'm still on. Um, you know, cause even though I think that, you know, as libertarians, there are certainly many things that we agree on at the same point in time, because we are dealing with human beings and human relationships between and among human beings, you know, things pop up that uh, we might have some differences on things like intellectual property. I think there, you know, there's a lot of libertarians disagree on both sides of that. Uh, and I, I certainly think there are good arguments about both of those. So I'm still refining my thoughts on many things. Um, but in a nutshell, yeah, Cliff Note version, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think any libertarian that's being honest about things, you know, has to admit there are certain issues where no matter what side you're on, we can always be evolving and always be learning and always kind of challenging our own takes on things. Because if we ever get to the point where we just decide, well, I know everything, I've got everything set, then you're no longer really participating in, in an intellectual dialogue. Right. And so much of it really is uh, – you know, when we talk about things like rights and concepts like that, you know, it really is – a legal system and how we uh, how we relate to one another and the framework for that legal and political system. Right. Uh, so there's some subjectivity involved with it. I mean, we just have to accept that. You know, I, th I think it comes from an objective truth, which is self ownership. But then when we start expanding all that and the implications of that, we can arrive at sometimes somewhat different conclusions. <laughs> hey there, kitty cats! I need to take a quick little break to remind you that if you love coffee, and I need coffee, I need coffee to get through interviews at this point because let's say so, I just passed 40, I need a little extra kick in my step, and I get that kick from our good friends at Lauren Zotti Italy. These guys have some premium coffee blends at an amazing price. You wanna check them out at laurenzotti.coffee. That's laurenzotti.coffee, not .com. And what I love about these guys is that they aren't just fine coffee connoisseurs. They are also not just entrepreneurs themselves, but they are out there helping other people start their own businesses. Uh, they help people procure equipment, financing, and everything else they need to start their own coffee shops. So please do check out our friends at Lauren Zotti Italy. Don't forget to use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. So take me through through this thought process of why you decided to go about, I mean, you're probably making, a, a, I'm just going to assume, a much better living just, you know, as a pro wrestler than you are as the mayor of County um, Knox County, Tennessee, at least from a, a straight financial perspective. So why did you decide to kind of scale back uh, your career in the wrestling ring? I know you're still popping in now and then and actually run for political office. Because I know you're also doing a lot of commentary on the side uh, before that, very vocal about your beliefs, but you decided to actually take those beliefs and dive into the political system. So what was what was the thought process behind that for a long time i actually had sworn off politics completely i did not want to get into electoral politics uh, a lot of that had to do with the 2012 uh, presidential election i was a big ron paul supporter uh, the republican national committee basically everybody knew that ron wasn't going to win but they wouldn't allow his delegates to attend the convention. They wouldn't give him a speaking spot, all this stuff, just because, I mean, at that time, it was like the things that he said would have, I guess they would have been dangerous to, you know, the establishment of the Republican Party. And I found that. And he had no chance to win either. They were just I, literally afraid of letting him talk. For yeah, exactly. I mean, we all knew that he wasn't going to win, you know. Uh, I, yeah. And it was just like they, they were almost afraid of allowing him to talk. Uh, and. I just found that terrible. I was like, well, you know, if a guy like Ron Paul uh, can't 
isn't even allowed to talk. What chance do any of the rest of us have of working within the system? Uh, but, you know, I got to thinking about that and I was actually on Tom Woods's podcast and said the same thing, you know, and I'm, I was like, I'm done with politics. And uh, Tom was like, well, that's, that's great. But unless you assume that 300 million other Americans are going to suddenly withdraw their consent from the federal government, <laughs> you know, politics is still there in, in the real world. And I thought about that a lot. I'm like, yeah, you know, as libertarians, I think what we sometimes tend to do is we have our ideas of what the perfect society is, or at least a much more just libertarian society. We fail to acknowledge the reality that that's not the society that we currently live in. Um, and then we become like, well, if I can't have this, not interested in this, well, this is the one we live in. So we really, what we should be doing is trying to move this to that one, uh, which can be, you know, can be difficult. I've really found that out in this office. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, I'm a big believer in the American dream. I'm a big believer in America for all of our faults and for all of our flaws. This is still a country where when you when we talk about things like liberty, for many people, uh, it, it's in our DNA. And I was I grew up on a farm in Missouri. My family didn't have a whole terrible lot. We weren't poor, but we definitely weren't affluent. And uh, from there, I just kind of fell into opportunities that ended up taking me around the world and made me famous and all these different things. I'm like, how is it possible for someone like me who grew up in the circumstances that I did to be very fortunate to have been able to do the things that I've done throughout my life and been able to do for my family, the things that, that I've been able to do that, that, that have been provided for me. And the reason is because that's, that's, that's the free market. That's the American dream. It's a free enterprise system. And I thought to myself, you know, it'd be a tremendous waste if, as Ronald Reagan says, we're always one generation away from the extinction of freedom or freedom is one generation away from extinction. Wouldn't it be a tremendous waste if our generation was the generation that dropped it? Um, and that's really the reason. I, I want to make sure that my, for me personally, my grandkids just had the opportunity to grow up in a country that's one that provides opportunity. Uh, you know, and when, especially when I look around now and I see all the things going on and especially on the radical left and I'm like, you know, there, there are problems with the country and there always have been, but I feel like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater at this point. And instead of looking at the things that are right, which is personal liberty, which is free market system and working on those, you know, we're concentrating on everything that's wrong and saying what's wrong with the country is the things that are actually right about the country. So you kind of felt that if you weren't out there uh, being a part of this, at least trying to change it in some way, that you know you're, you're you might just be helping lead the world, you know, lead into a worse world for for your kids and your grandkids and that sort of thing. So, what was it about this specific office, you know, about running for the mayor of Knox County? Why did you target that office? I know there's a lot of people out there that they you know, lo love to see you running for Senate, uh, you know, maybe even running for president, uh, you know, something huge like that. Why did you decide to focus on a local office like this? Local government is really important. State government is really important. We think about the federal government, and that's where we think we have the most impact. I disagree, actually. Um, federal government, I think, at this point, just looking at it, especially after this presidential election, what it looks like it's coming. Uh, the federal government, I don't want to say it's lost cause, but um, you can have a lot of impact at your local level. For instance, if you look at what's happened with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, 
we're not doing the same things here in Knox County in the state of Tennessee that they're doing in California, that they're doing in New York. You know, we're much more like South Dakota. We, we have some stuff in place here. You're um, making me want to move to Knox County, Glenn, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm out here in Los Angeles and it's, exactly. it's a disaster. Exactly. I mean, you know, but we have some stuff in place, by the way, most of which I voted against. Um, but nevertheless, we do have some things in place, but it, it's really compared to those places, it, it's nothing. You know, I mean, even the stuff we have here, we don't we don't charge people criminally for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes a huge difference. And we're the states that are doing that, the Tennessee's, the South Dakota's, the Florida's, they're differentiating themselves now, you know, because what's going to happen is hopefully as we move forward and and put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror, we're the ones that are going to have the economic power because states like California have just killed themselves. You know, they've literally committed economic suicide with which with what they've done. And we're seeing the productive people, the companies, they want to move to places like Tennessee, like Texas, like Florida. So it really does make a difference. Okay. And it may not be as sexy as being in Congress or being in the White House, uh, but nevertheless, if you're someone out there that wants to have an impact on your community, you can do it at the local level. Right. You could be one senator or one congressman uh, on, a, on a big vote where maybe you're not really making right. much of an impact or you can actually control things and help help have sort of a, a more free society, at least in your local area. Exactly. It's, you know, you, you have much more. Uh, it's the, the diffusion of benefits. Right. You have much more impact on a small group of people than they have across the country. You know, and that's not saying anything. People like Thomas Massey are awesome. Justin Amash, really good. Rand Paul's awesome in the Senate. Um, and I'm glad they're there, but at the same point in time, uh, their their main impact is actually as spokespeople, not necessarily with the policies that, unfortunately, in many cases, they're unable to push forward. What was your reception like when you first decided uh, to uh, run uh, run for mayor and uh, run as, as a Republican? Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming as a lot of people at first might have looked at you as, oh, who, this pro wrestler is running for office. OK. Uh, and you had never had you know, you had never run for office before. So what what kind of reception did it, did you get? Were you welcomed uh, with open arms by Republicans or, or were people kind of skeptical of you? A little bit of both. When Donald Trump won the presidency, that was actually when I was like, oh, I think I can do this. <laughs> right, because right. when you have a complete outsider like that get into the White House, you're like, OK, I think you know, I think the the country is ready for people who have not been in the political realm. They're tired of the career politicians. And so I was able to take advantage of that. Of course, yes, I had overcome um, the wrestling thing. But I actually, you know, people were, were actually pretty OK. And I didn't get much of the, you know, he's a stupid wrestler. I got a little bit of it, but not much. Um, and I knew that my challenge would be that that could open the door. It's a novelty. I could get press and media from that. At the same point in time, I couldn't run a campaign based around that. It'd be a joke and it'd really be a disservice to the people in the community. Right. Um, so I that's how I looked at it is I can use this and I can do some cool things and and run a different campaign. And we did. But at the same point in the time, in the end, I had I had to know my stuff and be able to present myself in a professional way. So uh, that's what I did. And I worked really hard. I mean, uh, the beauty of a local race is if you get out there and you work hard and you knock on doors like crazy, you can actually be competitive. And I was fortunate. I won a primary by 23 votes out of like 45,000 votes cast in wow. a three-person race. Yeah. Uh, so that was really tight. Um, but 
uh, again, I, I'm proud of the work that, the, that my team and I did on the campaign because we worked really hard to make that happen. How have you found uh, sort of because, you know, you when you were on the show seven years ago, you described yourself as, you know, a theoretical Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist, uh, ultimately believing in a stateless si- society. But at the same time, now here you are as a mayor, technically in sort of a status position, I, I guess you might sure. say. So, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, the challenges of COVID-19 trying to, you know, you know, at least take as much of a stance as you could to keep things as free and open as possible. Uh, in your area, but I'm curious what other areas, what other challenges have you had uh, just when it comes to your decision making, when you have might be presented with a case where you have to make a decision, maybe both options are sort of a status position of some <laughs> kind, you know? So how do you go about that process when trying to sure. apply that principle philosophy to the decisions you have to make in office day to day? Sure. Um, you know, and again, in Tennessee, we're we're a little bit different. I mean, I think people often think we're just a bunch of social conservatives and 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 yeah, the people here, again, they're a lot like me. I mean, they might be conservative in their own personal lives, but people here are actually pretty libertarian. They're, they're much of the keep my taxes low, keep crime down, and keep out of my life. And that's what they want. And I, I can pretty much I can go along with all those things. So in the end, you just have to keep – you really still have to keep your compass and realize that, yeah, sometimes, you know, there are things that um, you are presented with and – they're not things that you would do again. If, 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 if you had your choice in, you know, the libertarian world, you wouldn't do that, but you have to weigh it and say, okay, you know, what am I trying to accomplish? Is this going to hopefully lead to, uh, you know, more Liberty? Um, if, if it leads the other way, you know, it's no go. Um, but you know, in many cases it's like, is it going to make government more effective? Is it going to create jobs? Is it going to, you know, help keep taxes low? Is it going to lead to more Liberty? Then even if it's not perfect, at least you're moving in that way. You know, I look a lot again at Ron Paul, or I'm sorry, Rand Paul and, you know, Rand will catch a lot of flack from libertarians because he's not a pure libertarian. Well, the dudes kept us out of wars. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much more libertarian can you be than, than that? So even though he may not be the perfect libertarian. By that, by that do you um, mean he's just, he's been in Donald Trump's ear enough that he, you think he's yeah, had that kind yeah. of influence? Exactly. Yeah. And he, you know, he's been stalwart against that, uh, against that. Uh, he's been very good on things like criminal justice reform and many other things that we talk about. So yeah, even though he may not be the perfect libertarian, um, he's probably done more libertarian things than any other U.S. senator ever has and been able to keep the country uh, it, it going in the right direction. Um, but it is difficult because, yeah, there's, you know, sometimes it's like this, this is just what it is. Um, and, you know, you have to wrestle with your conscience and say, okay, this is, you know, I have to do this because and you also have to prioritize and say, you know, this one isn't as big a fight as this one. And if I do this, I'll be in a better position to accomplish this. Maybe we can kind of look at at this thought process uh, that you go through by looking at kind of what's played out over the last eight or nine months or so with the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, I'm sure, I I imagine when this first struck that you were probably getting all kinds of pressure. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe you can guide us through. Like, well, what what elements were you hearing in terms of pres- things you're being pressured to do and asked to do, whether it's by the federal government or the state government, or you know, maybe there are certain things that you just have total control over. But can you kind of pl- you know guide us through the process a little bit of, of when you first started hearing about this pandemic and when you first started getting the idea that there's going to be a lot of sort of like freedom restricting mandates coming down one way or another? Sure. Uh, I actually was talking with our director of public health back. Uh, late last year, because I started hearing about this coronavirus thing that was coming from China. And of course, at that point, uh, everybody 
you know, when, when people criticize Donald Trump saying he did nothing initially, no one did anything because we were told that it was, yeah, it's, it's be like the bird flu. Okay. It could be, it could be significant, but nothing like what it morphed into. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason it's morphed into what it's morphed into is because it's been so politicized. Um, but in any case, man, I was talking with our director of public health and, you know, some of the things she said is like, eh, I, mean, I just remember two things that really stuck out. We'll, we will be dealing with this for six months. And at the time, the Chinese government, uh, I'm sorry, the World Health Organization was catching a lot of flack because they, they had praised China on what China had done in response to coronavirus. And she said, but we're not China. We're not a communist country. We can't do all those things. And then if like five months later, I'm like, <laughs> five months later, I'm like, huh, we're doing a lot of the same things. Right. Um, and, and it was like, it was one of those things was kind of gradual. Then it just went off, like went off a cliff. And, um, you know, as, as the local mayor, I just, I didn't actually have that much authority to do stuff because under Tennessee state law, it's actually the director of public health who does work for me, but at the same point in time, she's, she's an officer of the state kind of in that situation. Um, and she was, you know, she was pretty reasonable and I was, you know, we talked about some stuff and, you know, I, I, I tried to, tried to keep everything as minimal as possible. Um, and then of course, then, then the governor came out and, and the governor, um, did like a stay, stay at home order. But again, I mean, it wasn't like in California. He just, you know, he, they, they weren't like arresting people or anything like that, but they did start, you know, shutting businesses down, all this stuff. And I was like, you know, I was vehemently opposed to that because I'm like, this is, you know, you're causing as much damage to human lives through all of this, including not only to our personal liberty, but also to our mental health, to our economic stability, you know, things like food insecurity, uh, you know, all those things. I mean, we, we saw uh, and we have seen uh, our suicides have gone up by like 13 percent. Our drug related deaths are way up. Um, we we our, our morgue is investigating more people dying alone at home and then their body isn't their body isn't found for days because no, it's like older folks and no one's checking on anyone. Wow. You know, all these things, you know, I, I just knew they were going to happen because it's just, this is society cannot function like this. Now we didn't do that for very long. It was only a couple of weeks. And then we started coming back out of that. Um, there's a lot of pressure to push and put a mask mandate on. Um, by this time, it, it was kind of weird. It's a long story. Anyway, by this time we had a board of health, which was locally making these decisions. I do sit on the board. I voted against the mask mandate. Um, but it went through anyway, but again, you know, they're not, it's not like we give out tickets here or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I did everything I could, you know, and I think, um, when I, even when I look around the state of Tennessee at the bigger, uh, metropolitan areas, I, I think that I was just able through my influence to hold some stuff back that otherwise may have happened. And here's the most remarkable thing. Um, and yes, yes, COVID-19 is a problem. I mean, just like everyone else, you know, it's our hospitals are strained, you know, people are dying. It's terrible. Um, but we've probably us in Chattanooga, uh, which is Hamilton County or, you know, it's uh, Knox County, Hamilton County, Shelby, which is Memphis and Davidson, which is Nashville. We're the four big metro counties in the state of Tennessee. Um, Shelby County shut a lot of stuff down. Davidson County has shut a lot of stuff down. Hamilton and Knox County, uh, we both have Republican mayors, so we've been you know, much more um, not aggressively shutting things down. Um, and our deaths per capita are actually much lower 
than from COVID-19 are actually much lower than the national Shelby County. Granted, they're, they're uh, bigger communities with more population density, but nevertheless, um, you know, just from firsthand experience, like this idea that the shutdowns stop COVID-19, no, they don't, you know, and they cause so much human misery uh, that we don't have to experience COVID-19. I mean, this is here. Okay. You know, it, it stinks and it's terrible. It's something we have to deal with, but we really exacerbate that when we start going and doing all these uh, crazy things to the economy. Yeah, that, that's what's particularly revolting about these kind of new lockdowns out here in California and a lot of other places, because, OK, I mean, I, I'm against them from the beginning. It's clearly a violation of liberties. But, you know, at least for the normies out there, you can see, OK, maybe they really right. think we need to stay together. Maybe this will help something and then we'll go back. But it's eight months later. We have the data now. We can look all over the country, all over the world, and you can never find a correlation between lockdowns, between mass mandates and between the the, the you know, what the virus does, like none whatsoever. Uh, so the fact that they're kind of re- locking down. Uh, it almost feels like they don't even necessarily believe it themselves. It's just that feeling of, you know, we're a Democratic mayor. We have to take action. That's what we, we do. Have we to have to take something. action. Right. If we just sit back, then we're Trump. We'll be we'll be called Trump for not, quote unquote, like you said earlier, not doing anything. Uh, whereas in reality, whatever these politicians do, it's not going to actually change anything with this virus at most at worst, uh, which is what's happening. It's, it's really going to be crushing small businesses and right. that sort of thing. I'm, I'm curious, as far as your authority as mayor, like, do you have the authority to instruct uh, sort of like the local police under your jurisdiction to not crack down on certain things or to crack down further on certain things? How does that work? Are you completely, no. dis- you're completely uh, detached? The, the, sheriff is in, the sheriff is independently elected. Uh, in the state of Tennessee, the sheriff is a constitutional offer, officer. So I have no authority over the sheriff. However, our sheriff, uh, he, he much like some of your sheriffs out in, in California, yeah. um, you know, he's, he's like when they did the mask mandate, he told everyone, I'm not going to enforce this. Right. Uh, the city of Knoxville does have their own police department which does answer to the mayor um but they're a separate political entity but as far as the uh the county itself um we've been very fortunate that uh, sheriff spangler tom spangler who's our sheriff um you know has has taken the line that he has yes so with uh the biden administration seemingly looking to be you know coming into office next month uh most likely i guess uh depending on who you ask do you, and there's been a lot of talk uh, from him and from people in his administration about having a national lockdown having a national mask mandate uh what sort of things can you guys do on the local level if they try to impose something like that which to me would be completely unconstitutional but they'll probably try anyway on the national yeah. level because now they're talking about maybe they can't actually pass it as a law or an order and make you do it but they'll go to the states and say well we'll remove your funding for this and that and that uh, if you don't do that. So, you know, is it kind of the same thing? Like the local sheriffs would have to just decide hopefully not to enforce that kind of thing? I think so. Um, As you said, there's no constitutional authority for any of that stuff. And that's actually why President Trump has, despite the fact that, uh, you know, despite the fact what all the Democrats say, he's actually followed a federalist model and, um, you know, allowed the governors, in in some cases, I believe, probably should have stepped in and told governors, you can't do that. But, you know, he followed a federalist model and said, you know, it's up to the states to determine what they're going to do. So there is no constitutional uh, director. I I assume that uh, if, if uh, he's not even president elect yet, I guess Monday that happens if the electoral college votes for him. Um, 
But if, if Mr. Biden does decide to do that, he, he's going to get sued by the states, first of all, because, you know, um, we, we've already done that. Tennessee's already sued, sued the federal government uh, over various things in the past, um, and these states will join together. Uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida said they're not going to do it. Chris, you know, up in South Dakota said that they're not going to do it. I would assume that a lot of these red governors just politically um, – are going to have to say, no, we're not going to do that. And, you know, yeah, you're going to, I I don't know. They can come through with all the threats and do all these things. It's going to be really interesting. I don't know how it plays out. Um, But I think the best thing that, and I think too of that, hopefully a lot of that is just posturing um, because I think that if if the federal government were to try to do some of these things, um, it, it would get very interesting to see how the states would react. And the states still have authority to do, you know, to do certain things. I mean, what are they going to do? Send out the FBI to enforce a mask mandate? Right. You know, come on. I mean, it's just not, it's not enforceable either. You got to think too, in places like Florida, where they've been relatively open, at least compared to yeah. places like uh, California, uh, after all these months, and their numbers are actually way lower. They have lower hospitalizations, yeah. lower than lower deaths. It's hard to imagine the the citizens there actually even going along with this when they've lived yeah, this way yeah. for so long, so many and, months. And, and that's you know that that's what I hear too. Even some of the places, even out California, you know, there's places that they're just not, you know. They've just they're just ignoring Gavin Newsom altogether, yeah. uh, and and Florida's the same way. Um, and we do the same thing here in Tennessee. Um, you know, one of the saddest things is just the fact that um, politicians don't they don't give people enough credit for doing the right thing. Seventy five percent of the drop in economic activity that occurred in the United States occurred before the statewide lockdowns across the nation. What that means is the people were already reacting to this. You know, there was uh, an incentive to do certain things and people were already doing that. We see it now. And again, our cases are going up um, and people just aren't as out and about as they were before. You know, um, we, and that's all no voluntary. That's their own behavior. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and so you know, that's the other thing. But here's the problem. When politicians start saying you have to do this. That's when people start saying, I'm not going to do that because you're not going to tell me. So in many cases, you know, the, the actions that we actually want people to take when you mandate it, it backfires. And that's kind of how we are in Tennessee. We're uh, we're free thinkers. And I have a feeling that if, if they were to come out and say everybody has to do this, you know, people, it, it would actually be, be um, you know, people would actually act in a, a much different way just to spite just the to folks spite telling the them they have right. to do that. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, we're coming up on our time here pretty soon, but uh, there's a couple of questions I just got to get in before I let you go. Uh, so I'll try to make them quick. One, and I'll, I know you mentioned earlier you didn't plan to run for – you didn't really say that. But you said that you see more value in being at the local level because you can kind of affect things more. But you know, there are a lot of libertarians out, out there, both small and big L, uh, that, that like to fantasy book sometimes, sort of like to have a dream matchup, uh, so to speak, uh, particularly when it comes to the Libertarian Party. People are always looking for some you know, big, you know, big name to run on the Libertarian ticket. And there have pe- been people out there that have suggested they would love to see you, Glenn Jacobs, uh, either leading a, a Libertarian Party ticket. Some people like to match with Tom Woods as sort of a president VP. <laughs> I know that's not what you're thinking about right now, but is there anywhere in the realm of possibility that uh, either running, maybe not in the Libertarian Party, but even just running for a higher level office, something where you could be higher profile and sort of spread that message, uh, you know, partially due to now your credibility as mayor, but also due to your, you know, your sort of your, your status as a WWE wrestler and your fame from that as well? Uh, as you said, right now, I just uh, concentrate on this job. Uh, my 
reelection would be in two years. If I choose to do that at this point, I will probably do that, uh, you know, unless something changes. Um, and after that, um, as Knox County mayor, I can run twice for Knox County mayor and that's it. Uh, seeing that I have to make a determination of, of what I want to do. Um, I, I really have no desire to, to go to Washington, D.C. I mean, none. Well, um, the nice thing, if you ran as libertarian, there's virtually no chance that that would happen. So. <laughs> that, that might be true. So that might um, make it a little more appealing. <laughs> but again, you know, um, I, I just think that people can have so much more impact at the local and, and the state level. Um, and as we've seen you know, recently, I, th I think going forward, too, I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on states uh, to, to do the right thing. Uh, and to, in some cases, interpose themselves between the people and the federal government, uh, especially in red states, conservative states like Tennessee, like Texas, like Florida. Um, so I, I think that going forward, the real battle for liberty is actually not going to be at the federal government. It's going to be at the state and local level. And I think the more that people can do um, to uh, make their communities as liberty friendly as possible and really buttress themselves uh, against this move towards statism, the better that we're all going to be. All right. So we'll take that as a probably not. But I didn't right. hear a definitive no uh, yes. either, so we'll see. Yeah. Uh, oh, one more thing, Glenn, I got to know. I mean, last time, the last question I asked you was if you're, you would consider uh, you know, running for public office, and, and here you are now. So I got to know. I mean, you've, you haven't made an announcement uh, one way or another here officially, as far as I know. But uh, your storyline partner in crime, The Undertaker, did recently officially retire from, from the wrestling ring. What about Kane? Is there any chance <laughs> we will be seeing Kane in the wrestling ring at some point? Obviously, you have you got a lot going on now. But. Yeah, I haven't officially retired yet. I mean, uh, I don't I don't do too much. I pop in every once in a while, but I haven't officially retired yet. Uh, so, you know, uh, if the opportunity arises and they have a cool, a cool idea for me, I'm always open to doing that. All right. I'm going to take that as an almost definitely then, because uh, th these opportunities tend to arise, <laughs> arise now do, and again, but, but we'll and, see. And, you know, I still have a great time uh, when I, I go back to WWE uh, and, you know, it's just, it's something that, that's always going to be part of me. It's always going to be part of my life. Uh, it's something I don't want to just, you know, completely give up. So well, good. So there's hope for the, the Kane fans out there as well. Yes. Uh, maybe more so than the Libertarian Party people that, that want you to run. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a definite yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Glenn, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Uh, we'll have to make it a little less than seven years until, until the next time we chat again. But best of luck. Uh, it sounds like you're doing a stellar job. As, as, as Libertarian as you can be a mayor, it sounds like you're doing that in Knox County. So appreciate the time, man. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. All right, Kitty Cats, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Glenn Kane Jacobs. And uh, like I mentioned, Glenn was one of my very first guests on the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's people like Glenn that took a swing and just took some time out of their day to come on this program uh, from the very beginning before anybody had heard of it that really helped us launch, really helped us grow uh, a lot faster in the beginning. So I really appreciate people like Glenn that came on when no one had ever, ever really heard of, of little old Mark Claire. And now maybe 30 people have, but still, we're building. We're slowly building. And also, of course, our amazing patrons. Our amazing patrons have been the key to our growth, the key to us being to get being able to get bigger and bigger because we take every single dime that's sent to us on Patreon, put it right back into the show, put it right back into the production, put it into bonus content, put it into buying ads, put it into marketing, putting it into all the things we need to do to grow this thing bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, the conversation about the ideas of liberty has never been more important, quite 
literally never been more important than right now. That is not hyperbole than right now where we are seeing the most totalitarian moves that our or any government has possibly made in the history of the world. I mean, this is insane. The fact that we are being told when you can associate with family members, when you can meet with people outside of your home. This is the kind of stuff that was Alex Jones crazy talk 10 years ago. And now it's here. Now it's reality. And large amounts of people are not just accepting it, but supporting it. So there's no bigger and more important time in history to support outlets like this, where we can actually try to reach people, change their minds and influence them. And again, so appreciative of people like Glenn Jacobs, who've come on the show from the very beginning and really helped us in that endeavor. So again, thanks to Glenn. Thanks to all our Patreon supporters. Again, you can get two free months by heading over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And again, it's not just me here with the flagship program every single Monday. We've also got Brian McWilliams slapping you upside the head with his hard-hitting slapstickery over on Electric Liberty Land, his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty. And of course, John Odie Odermatt with perhaps for one of the very last times you'll be hearing Felony Friday on Fridays and I do not fret but he does have some changes in the works probably a slight slight format change perhaps a name change uh, perhaps a different air date but Odie will still be working hard every single week he will still bring be bringing you uh, be bringing up the rear I guess you might say here at the greatest libertarian variety show on earth Lions of Liberty my friends you get all three of these shows for the price of one that price is free just slam the hell of that subscribe button on Apple, Stitcher, uh, wherever it is you listen to the podcast. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a five-star rating and a great review. That is the best way, the easiest way, the cheapest way. It's free to help us grow the show, to help those algorithms get this thing in, into more of those earbuds out there. So don't forget to listen to everyone here in the Lions of Liberty family three days a week. And of course, next week, I've got my big interview with Vin Armani. Really, it's a part two from our interview back in June. We'll be breaking down his view of what we now live in which he calls the dim age and just how you can survive this thing so tune in next week until next time my friends live long and live free